addict, alcoholic, drunk, junkie, abuser. These are all common words used to describe someone with a drug addiction, but words do matter. So what effect are they having on the addiction community? Today's episode is all about terms to use and terms to avoid when we're talking about people with addictions. Welcome to the Surviving Opioid Beyond an Epidemic podcast, your one-stop shop for everything opioids, addiction, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Simone. The purpose of the show is to hear from all different voices on the opioid crisis and to give a perspective on certain topics that might be a little different than you're used to hearing. It's a show to remind you that although we've lost a lot of good people the past couple decades, we also do recover. Through establishing community, slowly changing our daily behaviors, addressing underlying conditions, and holding each other accountable, we can get better. Recovery, not merely temporary abstinence, is possible. If you enjoyed the episode, give it a rating, share it with someone, and keep the conversation going. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. All right, so words matter. There's no question about that. They're a big driving force of stigma, and it's always a pretty heated debate when it comes to semantics with these touchy areas. Also, one of the issues is that as a culture, we seem to have gotten very sensitive over a relatively short period of time. So now one of the things we need to contend with is that since it seems like everyone is offended by everything all the time, a lot of us have become desensitized to sensitivity, if you will. Okay, desensitized to sensitivity. So although, as with a lot of things, I feel that the cultural pendulum may have swung too far in the other direction in certain respects, as it relates to behavioral health or just substance use disorders in particular, it has not. Uh, And there are certain unique challenges within this little niche of using non-stigmatizing language. So those are some of the things that I'll be talking about here. The biggest challenge by far without any close second, is not pop culture or differences in the different generations or the educational system, nothing like that. It's the fact that all of these words that current day medicine and healthcare are trying to move away from have been embraced and embedded within the most mainstream of recovery communities, okay? Whether you've attended a 12-step meeting or not, you know how their members qualify. Before speaking, somebody says, hi, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm an addict, or or I'm an alcoholic, or drug addict and alcoholic. And they don't mean that they're currently addicted. You know, people with 20, 30, 40 years continuous abstinence will still speak about it in the present tense because they have owned that label, and it means something to them. That word or those words mean something to them. So I'm not critiquing that. Most people within the groups who who stay long enough to start getting better do eventually come to terms with it. The problem is that we in those groups also have a habit of casting that word about in everyday life and, and tossing it on other people loosely because we think that since we identify as that, that it bestows upon us some inherent right to say it to other people. It always makes me think of that classic Seinfeld episode with um, Brian Cranston, where he's Jerry's dentist, and and he wants to make jokes about Jewish people, but he realizes that the only people who seem to be allowed to are other Jewish people. So he converts religions just to be able to make the jokes with impunity. 
that reminds me of this situation sometimes. But no, I mean, just because you yourself have had a certain uh, condition or experience, although it allows you to speak maybe more credibly from that lived experience, it doesn't mean that you're now immune to the rules that the rest of the people are expected to follow. There's no doubt in my mind that if there had been no 12 subgroups and they were just started today for the first time ever, all other things being considered the same, that tradition of beginning each share from now until the end of time with, uh, you know, hi, I'm Jeff and I'm an addict, that that wouldn't be there. I think it's only there because of tradition. And even though we have convinced ourselves otherwise, and, and we think, you know, the most important thing is that I never forget who I am and what I am. So I need to continue to remind myself every day, lest I forget and end up back where I was. And that does sound nice. And it's a good way of, of justifying it since we're going to be doing it anyway and saying it anyway. I just don't believe that it's true. It's remained unchanged because in large part, the groups have remained unchanged, not because there's some special benefit to calling myself an addict for the rest of my life. And this goes for the family groups too. I actually stopped referring to myself as an addict before my wife did. She's been exposed to Al-Anon and, and they often like refer to the person as the addict and um, addict behavior. And so long after I stopped making those jokes about myself out loud, she'd still do it. Whatever it was, you know, say I wasn't doing something with the with the kids that she thought I should be doing, she might say, oh, you know, it's typical selfish, self-centered addict right there. And I've been absent for a couple of years at this point, right? You know, fighting for my life to do it, by the way, it's, you know, having a really tough time of it. So although it might not have been said necessarily to hurt me, although it probably wasn't being used as a joke in this example, I still had to finally say, I know some people use that language forever and it's kind of cute or funny in the house maybe or something, but it doesn't make me feel good when you say that. Um, and I think that that ended it. You know, maybe she snuck it in once or twice after that just for good measure. I don't remember. But the point is that since those words can be very commonplace and just used so casually in certain groups, if you don't like it or if you don't like somebody referring to you that way, especially if you've been absent for a long period of time. Again, some people have no problem with it. Some people, it just doesn't really resonate with them, but you might have to actually say it. Uh, now, is there a clinical benefit to being able to address a problem and, and to admit to needing help? Absolutely. It is nearly impossible to end an addiction to anything without first accepting the fact that you have one to begin with. So me being able to say, I am addicted is huge and it's a major sign in the beginning that somebody might be getting close to the desire and willingness to change but that's not the question here the question is is thinking of myself as an addict sometimes long after the behavior has been corrected is that helpful and i'm not sure i'm not sure that it is i will say that personally the words get stuck in my throat a lot more now than they did years ago when I was first introduced to the 12 step groups, which is a little bit strange because usually the opposite happens where, where people resist the word at first and then eventually say it and then have no problem continuing to say it. Um, in my case though, it was a little bit different. The treatment center that I was court ordered to, uh, this was in 2013, 
used to shuttle like a van full of us to AA meetings at night. And the rehab only had one van. So when the non-alcohol addicted people, which was the majority, said things like, you know, but I'm not an alcoholic, they would say, well, it's all one big spiritual disease. Just go and identify yourself as an alcoholic. And if you have trouble doing that, ask God for the courage to change until he lets you start saying it. That was basically the answer to all my questions, by the way. Anytime that I tried to question anything, it was ask God for the willingness to change the way you're thinking. And I was sick and withdrawing and just in terrible shape. You know, of course, I didn't have the strength or the resources to be fighting back. Plus, I had a huge looming administrative court case hanging over my head. Uh, you know, so they really had that on me too. And I was just kind of going along along for the ride. I mean, you know, like whatever these guys said, I pretty much you know, didn't have a choice at that point. And I'll be honest, like that word alcoholic, it has always sort of stuck in my throat, not because of the stigma associated with it, but because it just didn't really apply to me. Like I haven't, I haven't been drunk since I was 22 years old. Alcohol intoxication just wasn't a feeling that I was after. I liked opiates and amphetamines and muscle relaxers, you know, occasionally benzos to help sleep. For me, alcohol kind of interfered with those feelings that I was after personally. So I'll just be honest that it's never felt quite right to envision spending the rest of my life identifying as an alcoholic when alcohol was never a thing. Regardless of whether the word itself is stigmatizing or empowering, that's neither here nor there with regard to what I'm talking about here. And it's an issue with opioid addictions. It is. That's the reason that I'm able to speak about it the way that I am now. A whole lot of people are first brought to Alcoholics Anonymous by whoever. Um, you know, Maybe it's the treatment center or, or a friend or you know, somebody, the court, and they're forced to identify as an alcoholic. And it's true that if you're in bad enough shape and you're desperate enough and you're sick enough, you're going to do whatever and say whatever. Uh, but I know plenty of people who just never felt quite right about it. Jen Elizabeth was on episode two and you know, she got to a similar crossroads with the word. And now I identify at meetings as, hi, my name is Jen and I'm a person in recovery. Now you might say, well, good. That makes sense. It doesn't matter what words we use. You can identify as whatever you want. There's no laws in these places. You know, everything is voluntary. But you'd only say that if you've never been part of a 12-step fellowship. All right. There is a lot of pressure within the groups to completely fall in line with all the groups, rules, and customs and any variances not looked upon as you being an individual and asserting what feels good for you or something. No, it is all, this is your ego taking over and you're just doing things your way and you're still trying to be unique and special and refusing to own that word just means that maybe you have reservations, all that kinds of stuff, you know, and, and you can't argue because how does one argue against 30 people that are all laughing at you and dismissing any challenges that you try to make? So then, of course, one of three things happens, right? You um, Either one, you end up leaving. Two, you stay and just never feel quite right about it. Or three, you just own that word and, and start saying it yourself. So I never used to talk about my feelings around that word. But when I did, I started getting all kinds of people saying that they secretly felt the same way. So that's why I can speak a little bit more comfortably now. 
but it did take a while because talking like this makes me vulnerable, right? To the to the snickers and the gossip of the group, which doesn't feel good, of course. But I've come to a place where restraining how I feel about something feels worse than the temporary snickers that I get from speaking up. But again, it did take me a while to get there. Uh, I didn't I didn't talk like this at first. I just kind of went along with it and um and I am happy that I did because I am I mean again like I don't regret anything that I did in the beginning because it got me to this point. This is just me with a little bit of distance from that from that time reflecting back on this is how I have felt the entire time. Uh, but okay, I want to talk a little bit about a new guidance that was put out by the NIH, uh, the National Institute of Health, last month, and it was around addiction language. And when it comes to preferred language for talking about addictions, there are tips and suggestions for family and providers and just the general public to keep in mind around person-first language, okay? This person-first language, which is the direction for a lot of conditions, not just addictions. And it goes a long way to reduce stigmas. For example, she's a person on the autism spectrum versus that girl's autistic. And look, this takes practice. You've probably been using the word addict as casually as you use any other word. So working it out of your vocabulary is a process over time. I've been personally tuned into this for a while, so I actually don't use the word addict very often anymore. Hardly ever, really. You know, junkie, I can't remember the last time that I used that word. and. Some of this stuff is a little hard to change just out of convenience sake, right? Especially when writing, I've noticed. Like, like I write a lot for social media posts and blogs, and I'll choose a few words for a headline on a social media video, maybe. And anybody who, who makes videos like that, you know that the whole name of the game is to deliver your message as quickly, uh, to capture attention as concisely as possible. In other words, in as few words as possible. So the word addict gets a message across quickly, whereas saying a person suffering with substance use disorder, that's a bit more of a mouthful. So that's a real thing too. And I don't hear too many people talking about it. Now, it's not a reason to keep using a word, okay? You know, convenience is not is not a reason. I'm just saying that it's something that will come up most likely. But we're talking about reducing stigmas. That's the purpose for paying attention to our language. A stigma is a form of discrimination against a specific group, in this case, people with substance use disorders. And it has an effect. Feeling stigmatized can reduce willingness to seek treatment. It can make other people feel pity for these folks or maybe fear or anger towards them. A lot of times it makes people want to stay away altogether or maybe just gossip behind their back. You know, stigmatizing language can absolutely negatively influence healthcare providers' perceptions of people with SUDs and the care that they provide. I worked on the pharmacy bench for 10 years. I talked with nurses, doctors, receptionists all day long. If you don't think that the stigma towards addicted people is alive and well within the healthcare world, you would be sorely mistaken. So when we're talking about changing stigmatized behavior, we need to consider using language that reflects an accurate science-based understanding of the condition that's consistent with our role, particularly if I'm talking here to other professionals. Uh, now, myself, for example, 
if you hear me talk in different situations, you'll notice that the type of language that I use, even just the way that I talk sometimes, seems to change in different contexts. And that's because I have developed a clinical intuition over the years by working with thousands of people in all different situations. And I understand that everybody, to one degree or another, speaks a slightly different language. And for me to be as impactful as I'd like to be, I always consider my audience. And it's mostly automatic at this point. Now, this doesn't mean I'm being a different person. No, I'm, I'm the same person. But my approach naturally shifts a bit in different circumstances. So even that being said, certain types of language should universally be considered. It's true that oftentimes a treatment center worker or a therapist of some stripe might be the first point of contact for a person with SUD. But it's also true that somebody in the social media space who begins to develop a bit of a following, you will notice how often some of that material gets viewed and shared, right? Like a lot of times family members might be seeing something, they might resonate with it, think that it will be good for their son or daughter or cousin or coworker or somebody to see, and then they share your account with them. And I'm aware of this. So with that in mind, to the best of my ability, even just online, you know, I try to take the steps necessary to reduce the potential for, uh, for stigma and negative bias. Am I perfect with it? Of course not. You know, anybody who does a lot of unscripted talking, okay, so stuff like this, you know, going, going live on social media, guesting on a podcast, you don't have the benefit of all the editing and carefully pre-planned words. And a, a lot of times the words just come out. Like it's way safer, way safer to write than it is to speak, all right? Writing is a great tool and it can be really cathartic and helpful in a lot of ways. But speaking on camera or on a recorded mic, that's scary. You know, it's, it's scary because you're vulnerable and we're in a dangerous cancel culture type of atmosphere where people get resentful sometimes or just jealous and maybe scanning over your words with a fine tooth comb. Or if you develop an enemy and you're, and you're a big enough name, you know, now there are teams of people out there pouring over your every word, everything that's ever been recorded from you, just looking for a little bit of a gotcha moment. I'm pretty sure that that's why most people don't do stuff like this, because you're just too unprotected. But it needs to be talked about. And I'm in the fortunate position where I'm no longer under the lock and key of a major corporation. So I don't have to worry about my words reflecting back on them. My words now are just my words. If you like it, you keep listening. If you don't, you tune out. But most people are really not quite so situated. Also, I've come to an incredible place after many, many years to realize that people are going to dislike me whether I keep quiet or not. So I may as well speak, which is such a nice place to be, by the way. And I sleep so well these days. But the point is that you want to use person-first language and then let the individuals themselves choose how they're described. That just maintains the integrity of the person as a whole human being by removing language that might permanently associate somebody with a certain condition. Now, if somebody likes the word addict and refers to themselves that way, should you encourage them not to say it anymore? No, of course not. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of that comes from the 12-step fellowships where people are taught to own that label like a 
badge of honor. So I'm not here to suggest to anybody otherwise. We just don't need to be forcing the label onto somebody else either. As far as the term substance use disorder, that's kind of a catch-all for all drug addictions, including alcohol. When you want to specify, you can say alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, but substance use disorder describes all of them. And then from there, we can use severity specifiers based on criteria, mild, moderate, severe, and that makes it helpful too, as far as knowing how to refer out. And it's significant for somebody like me too. A a coaching service can provide unique value to a given situation and it can complement a particular treatment approach, but the severity and stage of the condition would matter. And it does matter. For example, somebody with a moderate to severe substance use disorder who just completed an inpatient stay, they're enrolled in an outpatient setting, they have a team, and then they reach out for private coaching and, and they're in a stable place. That makes sense. A person with a mild AUD who's maybe not ready or willing to accept inpatient care, who's maybe seeing a family therapist and then also reaches out for private coaching, they're also in a relatively stable place. Now, a person with an actively severe alcohol use disorder who reaches out for coaching is not by definition stable. And this person needs to be encouraged to seek more intensive treatment as soon as possible. And that kind of stuff happens. So these severity markers are not stigma inducing. They're clinically relevant and they are helpful. Okay. So that being said, some of the words that we don't really use anymore, or at least we're, we've been moving away from addict, abuser, junkie, alcoholic, drunk, felon even. We say things like person with SUD, person with OUD, AUD, a patient, a client, a person in recovery, person in long-term recovery, that sort of thing. The idea is that the change in wording shows that the person has a problem rather than the person is a problem. When the National Institute of Drug Abuse put out their updated guidelines, they also suggested not using the word habit to describe a physical dependency. They say that the word undermines the seriousness of that disease, that it inaccurately implies uh, that a person is choosing to use substances. Therefore, they should be able to choose to stop. All right. Abuse is another word that we're moving away from. If we're talking in the context of illicit drugs, it should be use or user. Okay. So she's a user of heroin or for prescription medication, it should be misuse. You know, he's misusing his Percocet prescription. And that was because they ran a study that showed abuse, that word abuse, to have a high association with negative judgments and punishments. The words clean and dirty, kind of same thing, you know, like they really shouldn't be used to describe a person. Again, it's tough when there's a huge fellowship of people who talk about clean time and being clean and sober. It's just not the direction that we're moving in. Like we don't talk about other conditions like that. If somebody has heart disease and we tell them to limit salts and saturated fats, and then their blood work comes back and it shows high levels of triglycerides, we don't say that they tested dirty. Okay. So again, it's all about reframing the way that we talk, which eventually reframes the way that we think and then the way that we treat one another. Um, All right. I think that that's enough. I went a little bit longer than I wanted to with a few tangents, but for the most part, I stayed on topic. To summarize, words matter. They've always mattered. 
we're becoming more aware of it now. The NIH has sponsored studies that prove that words matter and, and impact how somebody feels about themselves, which in turn determines the likelihood that they'll eventually go on to seek treatment and hopefully eventually fully recover from their condition. So it's important. All right, guys, if you found this helpful, leave a review, send it to somebody, reach out on social media at Reaction Recovery. Keep the conversation going. Bye for now.